Hi, this is Tina Powell, host of In The Suite, where I sit down with top women leaders and some of the biggest names in the financial services and the wealth management industry. Together, we'll discover some of their best secrets and top strategies to grow a great business, build a strong brand, and lead teams in the 21st century. I hope you'll enjoy hearing their amazing personal stories of triumph, trepidation, and transformation in hopes of becoming better leaders ourselves. The time for you to lead is now, and you're in the suite. Within the first few pages of her book, Chris Putnam Walkerly, a trusted advisor to the world's leading philanthropist, changed and challenged my thinking about giving and what it means to be a philanthropist. As she explains in her latest book, Delusional Altruism, why philanthropists fail to achieve change and what they can do to transform giving, published by Wiley, Chris defines a philanthropist as anyone who actively promotes human welfare. It's a much broader definition than I expected, which opened my eyes to the fact that a lot of us are philanthropists without even realizing it. For more than 20 years, wealthy families, ultra high net worth donors, foundations, Fortune 500 companies and celebrity activists have sought and benefited from Chris's advice to transform their giving and catapult their impact. As president of the Putnam Consulting Group, a philanthropy advisor, speaker, and award-winning author, she's helped over 100 philanthropists strategically allocate over half a billion dollars in grants and gifts. Additionally, Chris works closely with estate planning attorneys, financial and wealth advisors, and family offices to serve wealthy families who wish to deepen their philanthropic commitments. Chris has been named one of America's top 25 philanthropy speakers for the past three years running. And before delusional altruism, Chris Putnam Walkerly authored her first book, Confident Giving, Sage Advice for Funders. She's a Forbes.com contributor on philanthropy. Chris's clients include the J.M. Smucker Company, Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, David and Lucille Packard Foundation, Charles and Helen Schwab Foundation, Annie E. Casey Foundation, National Center for Philanthropy, Blue Shield of California, and the Cleveland Foundation. One of the gifts you'll discover about Chris Putnam Walkerly in this episode are her lessons about the importance of investing in ourselves and how that can help us create the impact we want to and change the world. If you think this book doesn't apply to you and only to the world's wealthiest philanthropists, then you are sadly mistaken. Chris's latest book, Delusional Altruism, is for anyone looking to maximize their impact in 2021, whether it be with your own time, connections, experience, resources, and whatever talents you've been blessed with. To take the premise of Chris's book, How You Give, is just as important as how much you give in the suite. Wow, Chris Putnam Walkerly, take a seat in the suite. I am so, so excited that we finally get to talk. How are you today? How are you doing? Welcome to the in the suite. Thank you so much. I'm really excited to be here. So Chris just published her second book. It's called Delusional Altruism. It's a 2020 edition. It's published by Wiley. She's been advising the world's leading 
philanthropists at Putnam Consulting Group on a global scale for over 20 years. And your expertise is in philanthropy, helping your clients transform their giving, catapulting their impact. And that is so, so fascinating. If we're going to have a discussion about philanthropy, Chris Putnam Walkerly is the person that we want to have it with because she is one of America's top 25 philanthropy speakers in the past three years running. She's author of two books, Delusional Altruism, we're going to talk about today in the suite, Why Philanthropists Fail to Achieve Change and What They Can Do to Transform Giving, and a prior book, Confident Giving, Sage Advice for Funders. And uh, she's also a contributor to Forbes on the subject of philanthropy. Her clients include J.M. Smucker Corporation, Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, David and Lucille Packard Foundation, Charles and Helen Schwab Foundation. The list goes on and on. As much as we talk about financial literacy, when do the subjects of philanthropy and giving really come? Where Where's that exposure from an academic point of view? I really feel that it's something that should be instituted at the high school level so, so meaningful. Yeah, absolutely. There really is not a many opportunities for learning, sort of formal, if you will, learning about philanthropy. Although there, there actually are an increasing number of youth philanthropy programs around the country and around the world, usually not through high school curriculum, but uh, it is important. I mean, you know, we can teach our children to give, you know, by setting aside money from their allowance to, you know, some for toys and some to give and some to save. So, there's really, it's, you, you can't be too early in helping people learn about philanthropy. Oh, so, so well said. And this book is about philanthropy as well as I feel that it's also a great resource for entrepreneurs in thinking about your giving, especially for startups. I feel that they should know the other side of the philanthropy equation as they are seeking funding from a philanthropist, a VC, and maybe even other micro areas of funding. So what a fascinating read. So let's start out with the book. And I I think that to our point about having that basic information, that foundational understanding of what philanthropy is, I thought, what a better way to have the words philanthropy and what it means to be a philanthropist from an actual philanthropist consultant and advisor. (laughs) Yeah, you know, most people equate philanthropy with tremendous wealth. You know, you assume that it's the billionaires who are philanthropists, but really, it's every. It's really most of us. Um, it's probably most of your listeners. It's really anybody who actively promotes human welfare. I mean, I imagine that describes just about everybody listening. And really, you know, certainly you can give money, and that's very important. But you can also give your time, your talent. Uh, you can give of the connections that you have and the doors you can open for nonprofit leaders in your community. I mean, think about. You know, during COVID, so many nonprofit organizations were, of course, scrambling at the beginning of all of this, and everybody was wondering how to apply for PPP, you know, loans. And, you know, a lot of nonprofits don't have relationships with banks, you know, or have a banker that they work with. They might have an account. And so simply introducing a nonprofit that you support, the leader, to your banker so that they can have a conversation about what do we need to do to apply? What does that mean? 
could have saved, you know, honestly, weeks of time and stress from that nonprofit. So, you know, we really all have a, a lot of resources. We might not think about as a person or as a donor, you know, think about your more than money, you know, and what else do you have to give? And we all have, I think, a lot to give. Yeah. And a lot of times we want to give your suggestions just right there about being able to give through your time, through your network, through making a connection. I think that while a lot of times we might dismiss if we're asked for a financial contribution, however, stopping to take a pause and saying, hmm, well, if I really believe in this particular cause and if I really want to do something here, let me just pause, reflect, stop and think and say, well, I can't make a contribution today. However, I might have a few ideas. That's what was really great about the book is that we are all philanthropists, right? Even just giving to the grocery store and making a contribution for now, I, like they have these bags, right, of things and they're giving them to to families. Absolutely. So the other point, and here we, uh, we're in the United States and we think that we are the best country and we have every other country <laughs> beat. However, when I was looking through the lens of philanthropy and giving, can you give us some idea, statistically speaking, where the U.S. ranks in terms of other countries? Yeah, well, it's interesting. You know, the U.S., I mean, really, as compared to other countries around the world, we really do have philanthropy as part of our DNA. I mean, it's a there's a deep philanthropic culture in this country that, that doesn't exist quite the same in other countries. Um, and I think data show that about half of all Americans give to charity and of course, about 90% of the high net worth individuals give to charity. But, you know, in other countries, you know, China is actually the fastest growing sort of philanthropic country. There's just been a tremendous amount of wealth generated and new billionaires that have, you know, uh, come up. And so there's a, a lot of them are trying to figure out how do we start foundations and how do we do that? So there's other regions of the world where philanthropy is really growing at a much faster rate. But when you look at generosity, as a whole, beyond giving money, which is defined in this particular study as donating money or volunteering or helping a stranger, then Indonesia pops up as the world's most generous country, followed by Australia and New Zealand, and then ranks the United States, and then a lot of other countries that you wouldn't think of necessarily as being you know, the wealthiest givers, like Sierra Leone, and many African countries, you know, pop into that top 20 list. So, uh, you know, when you when you expand your thinking about giving and, you know, giving in different cultures means different things. In a lot of African countries, giving is, you know, helping your family, but family is defined very differently. There's a, often a much more extended family. A lot of people that technically aren't your family, but you sort of help them anyway you've taken them in. And so that kind of giving is part of philanthropy, but it's a very different way than we typically think about it here in the U.S. It was so inspiring. And yeah, to see Indonesia come up as number one, mm -hmm. I said to myself, that is really incredible. Mm -hmm. And you hit upon a really important point is that giving through the lens of different cultures looks very different. And even the definition can be more, more broadly defined. 
And I mean, on the outset, it seems like you have the ultimate dream job that you've been to a lot of the countries we just talked about, probably all of them. You work alongside a billionaire donor. At least this is how my simple mind is thinking about <laughs> right. this. Right? And I'm like, okay, so what around you- the world, right? <laughs> exactly. Just sitting around the world, meeting with the billionaire donor that wants to change the world here, spend their money to tr- create this massive, massive change. It really is exciting to think about the impact that you can make as a global philanthropic advisor. Now, of course, that's my rose-colored glasses vision. <laughs> you know, but what is it? What are we missing about a day in the life of a global philanthropic advisor? I mean, I find your field fascinating. Yeah. Yeah, it is fascinating. And you're right. There is a, I mean, there's a tremendous amount of potential within philanthropy to be able to change the world or change, you know, your corner of the world. One of the challenges really is connecting with ultra high net worth individuals because they tend to be so hidden. There tend to be lots of people and organizations and institutions surrounding them protecting them, serving as gatekeepers. And by that, I mean the private banks, the family offices, the wealth advisors, the attorneys, and, you know, and their own sense of privacy. And so, you know, it, it takes a minute. It isn't like, I mean, it's different than, for example, you know, take your local community foundation, wherever your listeners are, there's probably a community foundation locally. They have a website with the names of the staff and their contact information or many family foundations or private foundations, they're more open and transparent about who they are, where they are, what they're doing, and how to get a hold of them. So that's the challenge is you know, making those connections. And you know, a lot of my work comes through referrals. A lot of it comes through those wealth advisors and family offices um, that are trying to help their clients with philanthropy, but those wealth advisors, those private banks, you know, tend to be more transactional in how they help their clients in terms of giving, they can set up the donor advised fund, they can set up the foundation, they can help make the grants, but they probably can't help the family create their giving plan. They probably can't help the family figure out, well, I care a lot about early childhood education. So what's the impact I can have on that in my community and who who can I partner with? Whereas I can come in and do more of that deeper either strategy work or research or connection with the family. Um, So that's one thing. I think the other is, you know, really finding the right relationship with my clients. So, you know, there's lots of people who are, I mean, I would say everyone is genuine for the most part, genuine in their interest and desire to be altruistic. But at the same time, you want to know that it's the right fit and that oftentimes people of high wealth have a high sense of belief in what they believe needs to happen and change. And I I really want to work with donors and clients who recognize that, yes, they know a lot and they have access to a lot of information and experience. And it's important to value the learning and experience of the people you're trying to help in order to have their experiences inform your giving strategies so that you're not kind of the wealthy donor coming in and saying, like, here's how you end homelessness, Mr. Homeless Person, right? But you're right. talking to people who are formerly homeless or homeless or those organizations and saying, well, you explain to me why this is so hard, you know, why it's taken so long to, to end homelessness in this country and, and working together with between the donor and the nonprofit and the community to jointly figure out what the right solution and intervention and support should be. 
Yeah. And one of the great examples that I related to primarily because my son played sports growing up, and that is you use the example of the, you know, professional retired NFL player Mm -hmm. who now wants to create these football camps and these instructional, you know, places for young athletes. And that's where their core competency is. However, that next part, that making impact is very strategic and how they can structure their foundation and their initiative inside is very strategic and much more in depth than I realized. Mm -hmm. Yeah, a lot of professional athletes and celebrities, you know, as they have become successful and accumulated wealth, they often want to give back to their community and give back in ways that were meaningful to them. So maybe, you know, they were able to attend camp or they had a mentor or they had some kind of after school program or some kind of whatever it was. And that was instrumental in their lives and really made that difference for them. And so they want to give back, which is awesome. And typically what people will choose to do is start a nonprofit and they'll start the tutoring program. They'll start the camp. They'll start the after school organization. And what people don't often realize is, you know, by doing that, you are starting a 501c3 organization that needs to be managed. It needs to be like, you need to pay the taxes. You need to like do the accounting. You need to possibly hire people. And more importantly, you need to raise money for it. And, you know, often people think, well, you know, the money will come or I'll just have an event or whatever it is, not recognizing like how much work fundraising is. And a lot of times people who might consider giving will say, well, you're wealthier than me. (laughs) 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 Why, what you funded, why am I contributing to (laughs) that? That's absolutely true. I could, I could totally, totally see that, see that happening. Yeah. And, and, and then a scarcity mindset comes into play. And I, I write about this a lot in the book and this happens, I think to all funders is you don't want to invest in yourself because you want you believe everything, all your effort, all your money should go to like help the people you're trying to help, which sounds noble, but I think is actually delusional because you need to invest in yourself as a funder or a nonprofit leader to be as successful and impactful as you can be. And so in the example I use in the book, you know, of course these, you know, the athlete and his wife were trying to raise money, but they didn't have any fund development experience. You know, they, that wasn't their background but they were really hesitant to invest in a consultant to, you know, a fund development consultant to help them identify foundations. They could submit proposals to write those proposals, you know, come up with a fund development plan. They didn't want to spend the money, but meanwhile, they weren't achieving the success that they wanted to. And I think, you know, we all have to, as business leaders, as people, as philanthropists and nonprofit leaders, we need to invest in ourselves, our learning, our own capacity, technology, you know, we've certainly all experienced so that we can both bring our best selves and and create the impact that we want to create. I know that you talk even a little bit about it in the book, and that is that when you mentioned the title delusional altruism to everyone that we did, we had a little bit of a laugh, but you don't really think of altruism being delusional at all. And then you immediately question yourself and say, well, <laughs> what what is it that I'm missing? Why am I delusional? So tell us a little bit about the genesis about the book title. And I'm also really deeply curious 
you've been in philanthropy for over 20 years. So where was that segue into philanthropy? Yeah, so uh, it's interesting. The title of the book, Delusional Altruism, came about from a few different places, but one of them was very early in my career. I was working for a nonprofit organization in San Francisco, and we were trying to raise money to support various human rights organizations in Central America. And this was back in the day when fax machines were the new <laughs> technology, right? And I remember those days. <laughs> you know, and we used faxes the way we often use social media right now, which is to get the word out quickly to people. So we would send fax alerts and encourage people to, you know, call their congressperson or come downtown for a demonstration or whatever it was. But, you know, we sent these faxes multiple times a day, multiple times a week. They were so important to us that we decided as a nonprofit we could not possibly afford our own fax machine because it would be too exorbitant of an expense. It probably cost $900 at the time. Instead, we were instructed to walk down the street 10 blocks, half a mile, and borrow the fax machine of another nonprofit organization. So that was a mile round trip. We had to walk or take the BART in San Francisco. And, you know, we did that multiple times a week. And so, you know, a few months or years later, we actually take a delegation of people to Central America to, to literally to deliver the aid that we're, we've raised for them and to support them. And we walk into the first organization we were visiting. And what do you think I see? This ginormous fax machine. I mean, this thing was, I've never seen a bigger one. It was on the floor, it, it you know, did copying, collating, stapling, faxing, you know, probably made the coffee. And I just was stunned. And I asked the executive director, you know, how could you possibly afford a fax machine? You are relying upon international donations that we are bringing. And he looked at me like I was crazy. And he said, well, you know, we need fax, we need to send faxes to like survive. It's really, it's, it's vital to our work. And I thought, wow, you know, that was my first, you know, understanding of kind of this scarcity mindset and delusional altruism, because we didn't recognize how this lack of investment in ourselves was actually hurting us. Because if you think about it, if we spent, let's just say conservatively four hours a week sending faxes, you know, walking around and sending all these faxes, well, instead of doing that, what if we had called donors four hours, extra hours a week, you know, think of how much more money we could have raised by making that minimal investment of technology in ourselves. And so that really was the Begin, I didn't know the word delusional altruism at the time, but that was really the beginning of my thinking. And then, you know, years later, I was already consulting in philanthropy and I was seeing funders, my clients, making the same mistakes over and over again. And it was really, again, genuinely wanting to be altruistic, genuinely wanting to change the world, but getting in their own way and actually preventing themselves in different ways from achieving the impact that they want. And, you know, I walk my talk. So I invest a lot of my own time and money in my own learning and professional development. And so I went to a training for consultants and uh, I came back from that training and I sat down with my husband. And one of the things I like to do is debrief what I've learned at these trainings with him. It kind of helps solidify the learning for me. And I was actually drawing like a, a Venn diagram. <laughs> and I said, I was going to say it had to be a Venn diagram because everyone loves a Venn diagram, myself included. Who doesn't love a good Venn diagram? So yeah, I was saying, you know, if it's this circle, if this and this, you get this, whatever. But if it's all three, you have, and then I just blurted out delusional altruism. And then I paused and I said, oh, that's really good. I got to go write that down. So I 
I literally like ran into my office and wrote it down on a big piece of paper and stuck it to the wall so I wouldn't forget. And uh, yeah, and then, you know, I kept using the term with clients and their, their reaction was always to either kind of laugh, but, you know, laugh with me, not laugh at me. Uh, or, you know, say, tell me more. I want to learn more about what that means. The training that you just casually just name dropped for consultants, is that a course that you would recommend? I'm speaking for a consultant. Oh, yes. Well, yeah. <laughs> a marketing consultant. <laughs> so it's, uh, yes. Yeah, so there's a gentleman by the name of Alan Weiss. Yes. Who you mentioned in the book. Yes. You mentioned yeah. in the book, The Million Dollar Consultant. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah wrote a book originally called Million Dollar Consulting and he's since written, I don't know, like 60 books. Oh. But he does a lot of training and advising for consultants to improve their, you know, their consulting, their lives, their businesses, the way that they can help their clients. And so, I, you know, I would certainly recommend uh, various trainings and opportunities with him. Okay. That's really good advice. I have a copy of his book and ladies listening for the show notes, you can text the word in the suite, all one word, I-N-T-H-E-S-U-I-T-E to the number 44555 on your cell. And we will make sure that you get these show notes delivered right to your inbox today because they are juicy. So, you know, you share the name of the book and yeah, I saw that example. You, you had me, you have real, me cracking up actually at different points of the book. And so the, the, the story that you just talked about the fax machine, I, I got the vision in my mind here and I can see how that could be some of the catalyst for you being involved in consulting because there is an opportunity cost to everything. If you pick one strategy over another, you're foregoing something else. You know, delusional altruism is a great business handbook. Yeah, I think so too. It's funny, you know, one of my favorite compliments about the book was from my husband who like midway through it, he said, honey, I had no idea you knew so much. <laughs> and it was funny. And he's, he owns a business also. He's an entrepreneur and, uh, and, you know, said the same thing. And I think it's true because a lot of the content, even though it is written for philanthropists and really it's written for, you know, the variety that have lots of money. It's very applicable, I think, to anybody. A lot of the advice in there, there's a whole chapter that's called You're Unstoppable. And I talk about, you know, being adaptive and agile and continuously learning is applicable, I think, to anybody. The book has a lot of great testimonials, including a New York Times bestseller author Daniel Pink, philanthropist and founder Mitzi Purdue, which also has a, a, she's, she's just a fascinating person. The president of Fidelity Charitable, Pamela Norley, who wrote this in your forward and said this, one of the biggest hurdles I see hindering this goal in philanthropy and one of the many provocative ideas that Chris discusses in the book is the misconception among donors that nonprofit organizations must be frugal in investing and in infrastructure. And when I saw that, I said, bingo, it's all, it's always, always about the money. It's always about the money. That has to be the number one thing that people think of is just putting it all in back into the foundation and not having the appropriate technology around you, people around you, infrastructure as it relates to training and ongoing learning and then learning how to be unstoppable. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's, it's about the money and it's also about the mindset and it's, it's recognizing it, which, so for the nonprofit, you know, 
if, if you're supporting, like pick any issue that you care about, you know, domestic violence or mental health or whatever it might be, right? And if you have a nonprofit that you think is really doing great work, you know, they're the domestic violence shelter in the community and they do amazing work and you believe in the leader, well, you know, wouldn't you want that nonprofit to be the strongest nonprofit it can be? Wouldn't you want them to have top talent, uh, great staff retention, uh, awesome board of directors, uh, super good and strong financial management systems, a diverse fundraising apparatus so they can, you know, always raise a lot of money, great communications and outreach, the ability to evaluate their effectiveness so they can always improve. Like you want all of those things, right? But, but what happens and, you know, but those things do cost money. And that's the kind of the quote unquote overhead that people often think is bad. You know, there's this myth around overhead is bad and, you know, 99 cents of every dollar should go to like the programs and helping people. Well, you know, you need to have the lights on, you need to pay rent, you need to pay salaries, you need to, you know, it, it costs money to have good financial management systems in place. And so, you know, it's important for us to recognize that we need to invest if, if these nonprofits and nonprofits represent something like 12 percent of the workforce in this country. You know, it's a huge part of the economy delivering services that are often contracted by the state or county government, you know, providing vital services. And we need to make sure that they're as effective as they can be and, and make that investment. But part of it is a mindset that the nonprofit leader has to have the mindset of they're worth it and they need to ask for what they really need and not just, you know, get by on a shoestring and give all the money to the people they're trying to help. And the funder needs to shift their mindset and recognize that this is part of doing business. This is part of being philanthropic. You need to invest in these organizations so that they can thrive, so that they can have the greatest impact you want them to have, which is the point of all of this, right? The point is to be able to help as many people as you can and we do that through strength. Uh, we don't do it by hamstringing ourselves. However, a lot of us have that scarcity mindset and we don't even realize that we have it. Mm -hmm. And what I love about your book is it's divided into two parts. You've got part one, which is that delusional altruism. And then the second part is the transformational giving. So you set the stage in one part of the book and then you tell us the prescriptive measures on the other side. So before we get to the prescriptive measures, I think we do have to do some self-diagnosis here. And you have a great, great self-test. And don't ask me how I performed on this <laughs> test either, Chris, but it's on page 17 and it's the scarcity mindset that you've mentioned uh, already a few times here in the suite that I think is so important because it's not only holding us back from altruism, but it's keeping us rooted where we are today. And you know, COVID has just been a complete, a complete disruptor. And I want to call your attention now to some of the questions from that scarcity mindset. And I, I have a few of my favorites. It's really what you say is there's eight questions. You know, give yourself a one. <laughs> give yourself a, a one for every question. And they might not necessarily even be questions, ladies and gentlemen, that, that you think they are. Like, for example, I like number three. Your workplace culture values working harder, not smarter. For example, people are expected to work late hours on weekends, long meetings are the norm, and that there's always a lengthy process for strategic planning and budgeting. 
that is something that I have to imagine that COVID, luckily, something like COVID finally started to take the culture now instead of it being, hey, I show up to work and it's time valued. Now it's results oriented, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, I've been working from home for 20 years, so I have always valued the work from home experience. But, you know, I think what COVID has done, we've all had to go and work from home and it's caused a lot of problems for anyone trying to supervise, you know, their team remotely, if that's not something you're used to. But I think it's helped us to recognize that, you know, we need, instead of, you know, seats and chairs, what's really important is demonstrating results. You know, it doesn't matter if you're doing something at two in the morning or two in the afternoon, as long as you can deliver the results and, you know, being reachable. Again, it does not matter that you're in the building, but it does matter that someone can get a hold of you when they need to, and you'll be responsive to their needs. And so I think, you know, this experience for all of us has helped us recognize, you know, we, we kind of hold on to these misguided beliefs about what is supposed to be, how we're supposed to act, how we're supposed to work just out of, because we've always done it that way. And now we've been forced to recognize that there's a lot of very different ways of doing things. And a lot of, you know, my clients have started practices during COVID that they want to continue when this, you know, pandemic is over and we can all go back into the office. One of my clients is the CEO of a community foundation in California. And she said, you know, every morning she has all of her team email her their top three priorities for what they're going to do that day and how they're feeling. And she said it's been helpful for a lot of reasons. One, she recognizes now that there's sometimes there's organizational priorities that no one is working on. (laughs) And then often there's priorities that are being duplicated, like two people are working on and really only one needs to do it. So, you know, that isn't something she would normally do in the office, but she started doing it now and it's helped her make sure her team is focused on what's most important organization-wide. And then it, of course, helps her recognize when there's people on her team that are having a hard time. And then she picks up the phone and calls them and figures out how she can be supportive of them. And she, you know, she said, it doesn't matter if the person's next to me down the hall, I still want to continue these practices because they've been so helpful. Hey, listeners, you can now text me at 201-581-3983. That's 201-581-3983 to join our text-based community in the suite. After you do that, I'll be lifting you up, inspiring you, and supercharging your life and career with awesome quotes, resources, videos, and tips we learn from our great guests. It couldn't be any easier. Just text 201-581-3983 to join our text-based community in the suite. I want to look at philanthropy through the lens of also the donor and what's happening right now. So in the recession, we obviously saw a pullback from donations. We even saw it after the whole Madoff crisis. I remember that, that people's pocketbooks just automatically zipped here. What have you noticed from your side, from the donor perspective, right? Because that is obviously foundations rely on the donor and and where's their mindset right now with COVID? Are people more apt to give or less likely to give? That's a great question. So on the whole, I would say giving has dramatically increased. There's been something 
over $16 billion donated for COVID worldwide. And, and that really does, is not even including every small donation that you know folks are making. The giving through donor advised funds, which are like sort of charitable checking accounts you can open up like Fidelity or your local community foundation has skyrocketed uh, during COVID. So there's been a tremendous growth in giving but, you know, at the same time, I would say donors can be divided into a few different categories as, in terms of their response. And on the other extreme is those who are, I say, they're either in hiding or they're in wait and see mode. So they're really nowhere to be found. Right. So uh, a study came out in July of this year that 10 percent of the world's billionaires had donated or pledged to donate in response to COVID, which is great. But that means 90 percent of them had not. So that, you know, so what's, ha where are they? Do they not know how to give? Are they fearful? Are they, you know, what's going on? And so, and, but there's a lot of just regular old folks that are, you know, a lot of people have a wait and see approach. Like, you know, you enter a crisis and you're overwhelmed and fearful and your response is, well, let's just wait till this whole thing shakes out. When it's all over, we'll see where, you know, we'll see where we're at and then we'll give. And, you know, that's a problem because you're missing out on a whole opportunity of time and, and need when you can be responsive and helpful for people. And then, you know, people are giving, a lot of giving right now is happening through these um, COVID rapid response funds. So in this country, there's been over 830, I believe, created all over in every state in many cities where it's pooled funds. So it tends to be started by, you know, the big foundations in town or big corporations and they come together and they create a pooled fund but anyone can donate it to it. So here in Cleveland, where I live, you know, about seven foundations started it, another 30, you know, joined in with big money. And then I think over 2,500 people have also donated to it. And it's a great way to have coordinated giving in a community because, you know, everyone tends to respond to the same thing, you know, the food pantry, like people. So then you have a thousand people like a calling the poor food pantry who, you know, they can't possibly respond to that much, you know, interest. And then no one thinking about, well, what does this mean for the women in the domestic violence shelter who now can't stay there and where are they gonna go? So it's a way to coordinate ident the identification of need across the community and the deployment of resources across the community. And then the nonprofits can apply to one fund and then that money is dispersed you know, across, across the community. So that's a really great way people are giving. And if I'm a donor right now, and you use, you have a couple of examples in your book. I want to talk about the, the the woman who unfortunately lost her husband and now has all of this money to give. However, she's, she's partially paralyzed and overwhelmed yeah. because she loses her husband. The death of her husband is a major shock to her. And, and now she, she can't even consider, she can't even think straight you know, I want to talk about what it means to kind of come out of that fog and how a woman like that would even start to entertain donating to this, you know, these charities kind of all com all coming together. Where's the mechanism for that? Is that on my, do I talk to my local financial advisor about that? Or is that something I see that's a selection in a donor advised fund? Yeah, it certainly depends on the circumstances. And, but, you know, I, part, part of the point you're making, and I write a whole chapter on this in my book, is that how easy it is to feel overwhelmed, even when we're not living through the greatest global crisis in a century. 
and how being overwhelmed holds us back. And being over, you can be overwhelmed for a variety of reasons. And of course, you know, loss of a spouse or some kind of personal loss is definitely one of those reasons. And I think, you know, for all of us, it's important to have a support network around us and people that we can reach out to for help. And in the case of her, you know, she had a family foundation and, but couldn't handle, you know, she was trying to manage a lot of it herself and she couldn't really deal with it. She was just too distraught. And so her lack of dealing with it caused a lot of problems. And so there are different vehicles and ways that you can give. If you're at that level, you know, or any level, you can start, for example, as I mentioned, a donor advised fund, which is a much easier way to give because another organization is handling everything for you your community foundation, or maybe it's through your bank or through, you know, Schwab Charitable or something like that. And you can get the tax donation, tax credit immediately, but you don't have to give the money away immediately. And so you can give yourself some time to make decisions uh, about the issues you care about. In that instance, I would say, yeah, probably your wealth advisor would be a good person to turn to just to make sure that they're at least someone's handling the legal and financial aspects of it and allowing you time to, you know, later to figure out what issues or nonprofits that you want to support. And so is a donor advised fund already doing the vetting process and the due diligence process for you in that 501c3? Well, it depends on the donor advised fund and, and how much effort they're putting into it. So they will certainly all make sure that it's a legitimate 501c3 organization that you wouldn't have any, you know, nefarious problems, you know, giving to some organization abroad that hasn't been vetted as being at least legitimate. But uh, they're generally not helping you identify, you know, which has the best leader or, you know, who's achieving the greatest impact because they, they're more kind of working at, at the transactional level. You're putting your money in your fund and then they're helping you with a transaction of allocating it to different organizations. And, you know, they could be helping you identify, you know, here's organizations working on racial justice. Here's organizations working on COVID in your community to help you kind of narrow it down a little bit, but it's still up to you. Or, you know, if you work with a professional advisor like myself to, to do that extra work of figuring out, okay, well, you know, there's a hundred different organizations that are responding to COVID. Like, how do I pick the one that's meaningful to me? Or I think even more importantly, taking a step back and saying, what issues do I care about? What's the purpose of my philanthropy? What kind of difference do I want to be making in the world? And how do I create a giving plan that reflects that? So I'm not just kind of responding to crises, but I'm more proactively and thoughtfully giving in ways that are meaningful to me, meaningful to my family or company, And I'm able to kind of track progress over time. There were some aha moments that I personally had in the book related to what you were just talking about. And that is the idea of asking the right questions and whether or not that you're sitting across the table from your your spouse or that you're sitting across from your financial advisor or even just having a a meeting on your own and doing some self-reflecting at the park or taking a walk somewhere. Chapter eight starts out with getting us to the other side of delusional altruism. And that is asking ourselves the right questions. 
And I didn't even know, Chris, that there were so many questions to ask. And this was really good. And I thought one of your key questions, it, it might sound so simplistic, but it was so powerful for me. And that does this bring me joy? And because giving and altruism can be very hard, right, for that widow who establishes a foundation in the name of her deceased husband. And then three years later, it might not bring her joy, Mm -hmm. right? It Mm -hmm. might actually hold her back. I've seen that, seen that happen. You know, walk us through some of those decisions about things that we should be telling ourselves and asking ourselves before we just blindly go into, oh, yes, we'll support this and we'll support that because it aligns with who we are at the moment. Yeah, I write in the book that I think philanthropists should actually experience, should, should receive more than they give. And by that, I do not mean, you know, receive more financially than they are giving, or I do not mean, you know, receive more like through like media exposure or, you know, ego boosting activities. I really mean they should experience, you know, really more joy. It it should feel like, oh my God, I'm getting so much joy from this. You know, even though I'm giving a lot or whatever I have to give, uh, it should really feel on balance, you know, like almost like you're receiving more. I often in my career have felt, so lucky to be able to be in it, working in communities, having meetings with people that I never would have had an opportunity to meet with because, you know, we're just so different in our, in our lives, our cultures, our backgrounds, our experiences. But it, to me, it's such a, uh, it's such a sense of joy and privilege that I, I feel so lucky to be in that, in that position. But anyway, you know, one assumes that giving money away is a joyful activity, right? And, and, and on the whole, I would think it would be. But, you know, there a lot of other emotions come into play. Guilt is one of them. You know, I remember there's a donor who, you know, her husband sold his business and for a lot of money. And they suddenly had more money than they ever expected to have in their lifetime, a lot more money. And yes, she wanted to be philanthropic and give, but she was first overwhelmed by by guilt that she didn't deserve the money and by the way that her friends and her neighbors and her colleagues were suddenly treating her differently than they used to. Mm-hmm. And then the expectations that suddenly came upon her. So you have to be very careful. There can be a lot of depression and guilt involved. And you really want to make sure that you have clarity as a donor as to what's important to you you know, what's important to your family and and literally the kinds of activities you want to be involved in doing and not doing and the kinds of organizations and causes that you want to support and, you know, get clear on your own boundaries and what's most meaningful and important to you because, you know, joy begets joy. You know, the more you're enjoying the work, the more you're going to give, the more you're going to continue it. You'll probably pass it on to your children and grandchildren, those values and that legacy. But if you're frustrated, you feel like the time you're spending is not what you want to be doing. If you're feel like you're stuck doing a lot of paperwork and, you know, reviewing all these lengthy proposals or whatever it is, and it, you don't like it, then stop. <laughs> Change how you give. Page 141, chapter 11 in the printed book. In order to have a transformational impact on whatever issue you're passionate about, you need to give in ways that create lasting and sustainable change. To do that, you also need to transform yourself and how you give. How you give matters. 
It was such a simple statement, how you give matters. So where does that start with how we give? Yeah, I think it's a couple things. One is I think it's getting a lot of clarity on yourself and what's meaningful to you. And so in the in the other chapter about asking questions, one of the first questions is why? Like, why am I giving? Kind of what's the purpose of my philanthropy? And and really starting with that, it doesn't mean you have to have a, you know, a weekend meditation retreat on this. I mean, you can <laughs> for like an hour and like brainstorm for your family, right? But just getting clarity on what's meaningful to you. Like, do you want to make a, a big impact in a particular issue? Do you want to make sure your family is very philanthropic? Like, those are very different whys of why you exist as a funder. And so just getting clarity on that. Because once you have clarity on why you exist as a philanthropy and what you're trying to accomplish with your giving, then everything else flows easier from that because you're focusing really, it's kind of like you're focusing on your strategy, if you will, than your, as opposed to your tactics. And so that's important. And then secondly, I think also is, you know, recognizing again, that despite, you know, as fabulous and talented and smart as you are as a donor, there's a lot, there's a lot that you know, and there's a lot that you don't know about whatever community cause issue you're trying to support. And so I think it's also very important to listen to those organizations, those communities, to understand from their vantage point what is most helpful and what is most needed. And, you know, one of the things, for example, I talk about in the book is offering what's referred to as general operating support. So it's a grant that, you know, or a gift to a nonprofit that basically says, here's money, $100, $100,000, whatever it is, we trust you to spend the money however you think is most important. And, you know, like, let us know at the end, you know, we'd love to hear about it a year from now. Right. And that money, that's like the gold standard of grant among nonprofits, because too often they're giving, they're given money, but it's like for this project and for that project, they're kind of cobbling together resources to support this nonprofit uh, and the work that they're doing, but they don't have the resources for like, adapting their strategy to COVID. They don't have the resources for how do we quickly get technology so we can go online? How do we shift from doing our gala in person to doing our gala virtually? All these like pivots and shifts that nonprofits need to make, not just during COVID, but even normally. Or how do you take advantage of an opportunity that's opening up in your community, but you need to invest some resources? And when you have general operating unrestricted support, it allows you as a nonprofit leader to be more agile and nimble and adaptive and navigate around problems or take advantage of opportunities. But if you're stuck with, you know, limited to this can only go for the camp and this money can only go for the after school tutoring program and this one can go for this project, but it can't pay for the staff. And, you know, it's very hard to have an impact when you're working that way. And so that's, you know, just an example of one way of like how you give matters. So instead of giving, you know, here's $5,000, you can only spend it for these things. Say, here's $5,000. We trust you to spend it how you think is most important. That operational agility is also something that you talk about in my favorite chapter, which is chapter 12, 
pick the name delusional altruism, delusional entrepreneurship, delusional business owner. There's so many great things that can be just applied to your to your everyday life. And I, I want to just for for you ladies in the suite here, I want to just rattle off those those five steps. And uh, we're going to be giving away five copies of the book. Yeah, and that's that's our altruistic efforts here. And I'm very clear on my why, because you've been a great guest and that I know that this book is transformative. It had an effect on my thinking and I want other women here and men included. We love you guys in the suite to be transformed and to see what it is to have a copy of this of this book. So chapter 12, You Are Unstoppable. Again, my, my favorite chapter of the book. And here are the steps, which I can relate to. Eliminate steps, increase agility, be adaptive, increase innovation, intentionally learn and improve. So many, so many great takeaways. And what Chris does really well in her book is you use modern language also to define these modern concepts. Thank you very much for not being boring, Chris. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> You're very welcome. One of my goals was that people would laugh while they're reading the book. So yes. I, I'm glad I've achieved that. In all of your years of being a philanthropist, you have to have some sort of story that was just I don't know, something that's the standout. I know you have many, but is there anything that you could share with us? Yeah, you know, and it's one of the uh, philanthropists that you referred to earlier, which is Mitzi Perdue. And so Mitzi is a, an amazing woman, and she was born into the Sheraton Hotel family, so has wealth from family wealth. And then she married Frank Perdue of Perdue Farms, so also had that wealth and experience and, and is a tr- amazing businesswoman, author, communications and media person as well, and is very philanthropic. She was sitting in, a, I don't know, like a lecture, I think, hearing someone talk about um, human trafficking and the problem of child trafficking and human trafficking. And she thought to herself, my God, I had no idea and I need to do something. I need to support this cause. And then in her mind, she was thinking about like her grant budget, you know, how much money she had allocated to give that year. And, and quite frankly, it, it was already all allocated to various nonprofits that she supported. And she thought, well, if I give to this child trafficking organization, uh, anti-trafficking, then I have to reduce my investment and support for these other nonprofits, and I don't want to do that. And so then she thought, well, wait a minute. She basically thought bigger. Uh, she allowed herself to not be locked into this, like, I only have, can give away this amount of money a year. And she thought about, you know, like, prized heirloom furniture that had been passed on, you know, over centuries to her from her family that was worth a lot of money. And she thought, I bet if I auctioned this piece of furniture off, I bet I could raise a lot of money. And then she thought, well, I bet, you know, if I got other people to do the same, we'd come up with a lot of, you know, resources. So, you know, even right now, she's still working on this project. It's called Win This Fight. And you could go to winthisfight.org and learn more. But she's basically, she's reached out to her vast network and she's gotten people to donate diamond jewelry, yachts, buildings, you know, all kinds of things for auction. And she's gotten an auction house in New York that's willing to forego their commission. So more, so when the items are sold at auction, more proceeds can benefit uh, the, the, a list of various different anti-trafficking organizations. And so what I really like about that was a couple of things. One is that she just, you know, thought outside of the box, if you will, 
and rec- and like came up with. She more- obviously read your book. <laughs> <laughs> more money than you know she thought she had, and was able to and, and used more of herself than just her money. She used her connections. I mean, she's getting a PBS is doing a thirty-minute segment on this effort. You know, she really reached out to the people that she knew and and build up some infrastructure around this so it wasn't just her but she got help as well and you know she's going to be raising a lot of money for a really important cause that money that never would have existed you know these donations wouldn't have existed if it wasn't for her that's such a great example we're going to have a link to that in preparation for this interview i watched many videos of mitzi purdue on youtube and she's a great speaker boy i mean you can just feel the enormity of her heart whenever she talks so mm-hmm. what a great thing what a great example to to share yeah i was really really moved by her so thank you very much chris for sharing that story we'll have a link in the show notes and i want to say something about uh, i want to make sure that people can get in touch with you. I want to make sure that they can get their hands on the book. So what's the best way for listeners to get in touch with you, Chris? Yeah, well, the best way actually would be, I just came up with a new resource that I think will be of interest to your listeners. It's called Eight Things Every Philanthropist Can Do to Change the World, Even When the World Keeps Changing. Because so many donors and people right now feel kind of paralyzed because they want to do something, but conditions all around us keep changing, you know, if it's the elections or it's COVID or it's lockdown or whatever. And so it's really, again, like the book, it's written for philanthropists, but it's very much applicable to anyone, a business person or anyone. So again, uh, it's called eight things every philanthropist can do to change the world, even when the world keeps changing. And it's a free download. uh, And it's, you can find it at at eightthings.org. So eight, the number eight, or spell the word out eight. Either way, it'll get you there, eightthings.org. And that's a free download, and you'll be able to connect with me that way. And then the book, uh, you can simply go to delusionalaltruism.com. And then that gives you links where you can buy it on Amazon and Barnes & Noble and various retailers. Great. And we'll be giving away five copies in the suite of the book, Delusional Altruism. But it comes with a condition. And that is the condition is that in addition to you emailing me at Tina at C-Suite Social Media, uh, you have to include a recent way, not something that you did a couple of years ago, but something that you just did very recently during COVID that was altruistic. And we will pick the top five out of that. The team at C-Suite would love to, to do that and to hear your stories. So again, you could email your stories of you being a true giver to Tina at csuitesocialmedia.com and we'll pick the five best stories and you will have a copy of Chris's book. Now, our, our last question is something that we ask all guests because I can imagine that, especially for you, Chris, you've been in front of billionaires across the globe and that there's all a time where we need to channel this, you know, this superpower and just be on our game, whether or not that you're using a mantra to do it, a physical object, a ritual or practice. We've heard amazing stories in this. So I'm so deeply curious as to what it means for you. You know, honestly, what I say to myself and walking into those situations is you're lucky to have me. That's so great. (laughs) 
Because it's true. Like, I believe that, you know, I believe, you know, yes, they're billionaires or yes, they're, you know, celebrities or yes, they're, you know, just very successful entrepreneurs, which is awesome, but they're not global philanthropy experts, but I am, you know, and I can absolutely help them. And so that's the mindset that I put myself in. That's so great. So the next time I'm in front of a billionaire founder, I'm going to actually have to use that. That is fantastic. Well, Chris Putnam Walkerly, you have been amazing here in the suite. This is incredible knowledge. It's a great book. Again, delusional altruism. And we're just so excited. We're better off for the process for having you today here in the suite. So thank you so much for, for your contributions. Oh, Tina, thank you so much. It's been great to be on the show. listening to In The Suite, a podcast that shares amazing stories of women in business and the financial services and the wealth management industry. Our producers are Tina Powell and Kevin Hershorn. Our editor at large is Kevin Hershorn. Our content writers are Carmen Varner and Tina Powell. Our research and technical assistant is Rachel Powell. In The Suite podcast is sponsored by C-Suite Social Media, a digital marketing and social media agency for C-Suite leaders and companies in finance and technology. You can visit csuitesocialmedia.com to learn more. And thank you so much for listening and subscribing to In The Suite podcast. We are so, so grateful to you. We've got listeners in 427 cities and 28 countries at the time of this recording. This podcast was inspired by you ladies, so thank you. Please let us know how you enjoyed this episode with Chris Putnam Walkerly and share your thoughts on LinkedIn and Twitter using the hashtag in the suite. I would love it and it would mean so much if you left us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this amazing episode with Chris. You can connect with her on LinkedIn and Twitter at Philanthropy411 and check out Putnam Consulting website, www.putnam-consulting.com. And always, if you would like to share the name of a rock star woman in financial services we should interview in 2021, please send it to me at Tina at C-SuiteSocialMedia.com. Again, thank you for listening and subscribing to In The Suite.